Unless you've made a serious mistake, you are currently listening to a free excerpt of the committee program with me, Arun Chaudhary. Our show contains lots more global politics, and you can become a member at fans.fm slash committee to receive our full YouTube show, audio, plus other exclusive content. That's fans.fm slash committee. And be sure to check out our YouTube show every Monday at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Namiki Konst YouTube channel. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. We are now doing our segment, Deep Cuts. And today we have something very special that will be introduced by the show's own Julia Doubleday. Thank you, Arun. Uh, so joining us now, we have Alex Avina, Associate Professor of History at Arizona State University and an expert in Mexican politics. He is currently working on a book about state terror and drug wars in 1970s Mexico and how state violence against poor communities has fueled horrific levels of violence across the country for decades. But today we'll be discussing his previous book, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside, uh, and exploring the history of radicalism, Marxism, and community organizing in the Mexican countryside. In particular, his book focuses on the far southern coastal state of Guerrero and two activist teachers turned radicals, Gennaro Vasquez and Lucio Cabanas during the 1960s and early 1970s. Vasquez was killed in a car accident in 1972, but it is rumored he survived the wreck and was murdered by the state after being captured. Cabanas was killed in a firefight with the repressive PRI regime in 1974. Both men were buried in unmarked graves in an attempt to suppress the memory of their insurgent movements. So Alex is here to tell us a little bit about how it is that these two rural teachers went from community organizers and reformists to guerrillas demanding the overthrow of the government and about the historical context of these movements. So Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's awesome to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Um, so first, we wanted to ask you a little bit about um, going back a little bit in time about the Mexican Revolution and the Constitution of 1917. So what promises were made to the public as part of the revolution and as part of the process of writing this constitution? And how did the years that followed represent a betrayal of the promises of the revolution to the peasant population? Yeah, uh, so starting with the 1910 Mexican Revolution is extremely important, right? Um, it's the first great social peasant revolution of the 20th century. It's probably the one that globally gets the least amount of attention in contrast to some of the other more famous ones like the, the 1917 Russian Revolution or, or Cuba or, or what have you. Um, but this revolution that breaks out in 1910 is primarily fueled by uh, the demand of either expropriated lands that were taken away from present communities um, and the demand for local democracy or local patriarchal democracy as it uh, unfolds on the ground. Um, we have a military conflict that lasts roughly from 1910 to 1920. There's different phases involved in this. Um, generally, you know, for a long time, historians marked uh, February of 1917 as like the end of the revolution, because that's when you had the promulgation of, of the Mexican Constitution of 1917 that in some form still exists today, even though it's gone through a lot of reforms in the, the more than 100 years since then, since it was promulgated. But that that document that becomes law in 1917 essentially in a, in, a, in a way codified the peasant demands that led to the outbreak of revolution in the first place, right? That demand of land that had been expropriated, plundered, taken away 
in the previous three decades uh, prior to the Mexican Revolution, and the demand for something that they refer to as local democracy or municipal democracy, the the this idea of a, a of sovereignty at the very local level for for peasant communities in a country that in 1917 was still overwhelmingly rural, um, and it codified them into which at that point was probably the most radical constitution at least in the Western Hemisphere. Right? It had it wasn't just about enshrining political rights, political democratic rights, but it was also about enshrining social rights as well, right? The right to land, the right to housing, the right to form labor unions. Um, so it, it, was a, it was a radical document on paper. To actually get these things into practice took decades and decades of struggle. And even then, the promises of the Mexican Revolution for many communities like the communities in, in the state that I focus on in this book, in Guerrero, those promises remained either unfulfilled or partially fulfilled. And when folks would organize and demand the actual application of Mexican constitutional rights, by the 1950s and 60s, the Mexican state under the, the PRI, the, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, this political party that was in co control of Mexico from 1929 to 2000, um, they increasingly would respond to, uh, to these popular peasant demands with increasing levels of violence, right? And this also takes place within the context of the Cold War. So that gave them a certain, it gave them a certain anti-communist discourse that the state could then use against any sort of popular movement that whose demands were really demands that were articulated within the confines of the Mexican Constitution, not, you know, some sort of uh, Soviet Union or, or Cuban revolutionary inspired uh, demands. Um, so, you know, these movements that emerged in the state of Guerrero in the 50s and 60s, they tended to be multi-class. They incorporated peasant communities, impoverished communities. They they they. They had even, you know, civil sector, civil workers, um, and 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 you started to see the, the emergence of these big multi-class civic movements uh, start to emerge in the late 1950s in response to both local, really hated political bosses and state governors that tended to rule with an iron fist. But then they it, slowly they radicalized to take on to, to to form a more radical critique of the entire PRI and Mexican state structure. Right. Um... Yeah, I want to, before we even get into the 50s, I also wanted to touch on the 1930s. You talk a little bit in the book about how a lot of the radicals um, that end up being, you know, guerrilla fighters and major activists and people who think the government should be overthrown, they start out as reformists and they say, we still believe in the Constitution, we still believe in the president. Um, and a lot of times they, um, you refer to them as Cardenistas, so they are supportive of the former president Cardenas, uh, who served in the 1930s, as an example of someone that they feel like did live up to the promises of the of the revolution. So, can you tell us a little bit about you know who President Cardenas was, what he was doing, and then maybe from there, what you know what happened to the PRI because he also was a member of the. PRI. And I think also if you can examine just that thread of. Um, who the characters were in the original Mexican Revolution, who were close to the presence and promising these them these things, I think we we've, we've kind of missed some of the wholesome moments. Yeah, yeah no, those those are great questions. So, I mean, the there was an assortment of local radical figures that were involved in the Mexican Revolution in the state of Guerrero, who I think are really fascinating, and because they're not national figures, they're not well known outside of the state. So, for instance, you have a guy who ran for the mayor, the mayorship of the city of Acapulco in the late 1910s, who became known as the Lenin of Acapulco. This guy by the name of Juan Escudero, who, before running to be mayor and then successfully winning the election, managed to organize um, 
longshoremen, longshore workers, and and fisher folk and peasant communities on the outskirts of Acapulco um, into this radical social democratic uh, movement that was really inspired by the most radical vector of the Mexican Revolution, and that's the figure of Emiliano Zapata in the southern state of of, of Morelos, right? This idea of of, of of Emiliano Zapata and the Zapatista, the original Zapatistas in, in during the Mexican Revolution, the idea of, of peasant power um, going from the community up, right? So you, it's it was an it was a form of people's power or popular power, locally defined, um, protected by an armed populace that then managed to spread throughout different countries of, of Mexico. And essentially, what they were demanding uh, was peasant control over uh, over land. Um, not just the actual ownership of land, but also the the right and the ability to determine the social, political, and and, and cultural uses of that land. And so Zapata becomes the most radical figure of the Mexican Revolution. Um, he inspires a, a, a series of different movements throughout the country during the, the military phase of the revolution um, and even after, right? So the guy that I mentioned in Guerrero in 1919, um, Juan Escudero, the Lenin of Acapulco, he actually will be in power from 1919 to 1923, um, after, during which uh, he's assassinated in 23 during a, a counter-revolutionary coup that, that takes place in the country. Um, but it's this idea of Zapata that really takes hold in certain parts of Guerrero that motivates people like uh, Escudero. And again, the simple idea is the people who work the land should own the land and should be able to determine how to, the, the social and economic uses of that land. And that then will shape how political power develops, right? It's developing from the ground up as opposed to a centralized uh, state form based in Mexico City that's dictating down to peasant communities. Well, that's what ends up, that, late, that latter version that I just described is what ends up winning out. Um, by the time we get to the 1930s, you have um, the election in 1934 of President Lázaro Cárdenas, who's by most, I mean, I think most historians would say he's probably the best Mexican president of the 20th century. Um, he's remembered as, as actually implementing some of the radical precepts that were enshrined in the 1917 Constitution. He's known for nationalizing Mexican petroleum, and he's also known for distributing, redistributing millions of hectares of land to different peasant communities. Um, that's the positive, and that's what, how he's remembered by many peasant communities to this day in a place like Guerrero. The, the negative aspect that historians have, have kind of uncovered and thought about is that he also laid the seeds for this, this single-party authoritarian political rule that would then dominate Mexican politics until the year 2000. Um, you know, what happens to this single po political party ruling structure when you don't have a progressive leftist president like Lázaro Cárdenas? What happens when it's hijacked or taken over by more right-wing conservative figures, which is what will end up happening after 1940 um, when Lázaro Cárdenas leaves office? But Cárdenas is still remembered and becomes a, a referent um, in peasant political cultures for what the Mexican revolution could be if it was actually implemented. And it didn't just remain, uh, you know, on a piece of paper that's that's referred to as a 1917 constitution. If it wasn't permanent in its revolutionary institutionalism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry, Julia. No, well, so I was just going to say, I think, um, you know, the bulk of the book takes place during the Cold War. And it seems like a lot of the people that end up being radical um, he is sort of the reference point to make the case that like, look, we're not, we're not communists. We're not traitors. We want to actually, um, just embody what the constitution promised us. But then over time they continue to get radicalized. So, um, 
you know, basically by the state being overly repressive and murdering civilians. And over time, they're like, okay, well, none of these outlets that supposedly exist, um, like organizing and electoral politics, those outlets aren't actually real in terms of being able to challenge the PRI. And they turn to guerrilla warfare. Um, But I did want to talk about sort of one of the sparks that kind of ignites this flame in the countryside, which is this movement against uh, Governor Caballero. Um, could you tell us a little bit about this guy in 1960, like what started to happen and who were the people that kind of came together specifically just around this one very corrupt governor? Yeah, so um, it, he was a, a Raul Caballero Aburto was a, a military general um, originally from the state of Guerrero, from a part of Guerrero called La Costa Chica, the small coast south of Acapulco. Um, he had been a longtime military man. He had been assigned to military attache positions abroad. He allegedly was involved in the, in the brutal repression of, of um, opposition dissident political figures during the 1952 political campaign. Uh, so he already had this kind of like nefarious uh, legacy of putting down popular protest. And through this really um, obscure uh, backroom dealing type of way, the PRI posits him as the candidate for to be the governor of Guerrero in the late 1950s. Um, you know, they go through the performance of these elections, right? It's not that they just appoint him and put him into office. There's actually these elections where you have the PRI running candidates and you have an assortment of smaller political parties, some of whom are actually being financed by the PRI. It's this whole show. Um, so Caballero Aburto takes over in the late 1950s. And what he starts to do is he starts to to, to rule in a very violent, nepotistic way, right? His He puts his relatives in really posh government positions and posts that that allow them to be extremely corrupt. Um, He starts to implement tax raises on regressive tax raises on um, on, on the on the poorest working class communities and peasant communities of Guerrero. And he's also known for creating more police forces that will be used to tamp down on any sort of dissidents. I mean, he's there's a an intrepid uh, Acapulco based journalist who starts talking about, you know, a thousand people have been killed during the during the, the the governorship, the three year period uh, of governorship that Caballero Aburto was in power from fifty seven till sixty, he was such a he was such an nefarious figure that he he almost single handedly sparked this wide statewide multi class civic movement that includes it's multi class it's multiracial it's they they organize in the countryside and in Guerrero cities and their one demand their main demand is the ouster of this guy from power because he was such a violent, despotic, nepotistic governor. Um, they, they, it, under the Mexican Constitution, the Senate actually has the ability to remove governors. Um, and so the goal of this movement was to occupy public spaces in 1959, 1960, and force the Mexican Congress to pay heed and to remove this guy from power. Um, in that movement, you started to see the emergence of really young, charismatic reform movement leaders, one of which uh, was Genaro Vasquez, one of the main characters of my book, the guy who ended up being one of the guerrilla leaders. He had been an urban school teacher. Um, he had studied in Mexico City at the National School uh, Teacher Training School, where he had, he, he had been trained by, by a Spanish Republican exile. So it's a cool link between like the Spanish Civil War and, and the type of activism that, that he will embrace. And then you had another young, charismatic student from the, the Guerrero's teacher training school based in Ayotzinapa. And this was Lucio Cabañas, this other school teacher. Um, who eventually become uh, the other guerrilla leader that I focus on in this book. And they actually work together in this movement that eventually by early 1961 manages to 
uh, get the federal Congress to oust this governor, but only after there'd been a massacre of protesters at the end of 1960 in the capital city of Guerrero. Something like between 20 to 30 people massacred by a military unit that had been sent in to kind of tamp down on the popular protests. Right. Yeah. When I was reading about him, it just seemed like there was already a lot of corruption, but he just took it to this level where it was like nobody. It was just way beyond what anyone else was doing. I was actually sort of laughing about when you were talking about how he put all of his relatives in power because it was like his daughter, his son, his wife, his cousin, his other cousin, his other cousin. Like It, it was all of the um, positions were basically being taken over by this one family. And as you said, ruling, ruling with an iron fist. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting was after they successfully oust this governor, um, that coalition that came together to get him out sort of starts to fracture a little because some people, they just didn't like the governor and now they're like, okay, I'm kind of done. Um, and Vasquez, in the meantime, he has this organi organization, the ACG, and they start trying to turn that into an actual oppositional political party. And so can you tell us about what happened in the next election um, when they tried to challenge the PRI through, you know, official uh, electoral politics? Yeah, I think, no, that's, you're exactly right the way you lay it out. I think that the PRI, throughout the duration of its rule, had a pretty impressive capacity to co-opt even dissidents and, and resistors. Um, and that's what happened right after this 1960 movement. The ACG met, emerges during the move, movement against uh, this, this governor. Um, but as soon as he's removed and an interim governor is appointed, uh, certain important uh, leaders of this opposition movement get picked off by the, by the PRI. They essentially sell out. So a, a really prominent student leader, uh, certain polit politicians as well. Um, and, and the ACG splits between one, one smaller sector that wants to continue to work with the PRI and this other sector led by Hernando Vasquez that essentially will eventually turn into a opposition political party that will run candidates in the 1962 state elections. And, you know, the message that they're carrying to every corner of the state of Guerrero is the message really of the 1917 Mexican constitution. They're asking for things that are not beyond the scope of what Mexicans were legally entitled to constitutionally. Um, what they were offering was a pretty pointed critique of what the PRI had become. Right. That as the betrayers, the, the, the language that we use is, you know, the, the PRI has become the party of the rich and the oligarchs and they've betrayed the Mexican Constitution. We are trying to redeem it, um, even though some members like Canada Vasquez, you could see that there's their political radicalization uh, had started to move a certain direction. Right. And obviously the, in, the, in the background, in the hemispheric background, it's, is, is the Cuban Revolution, which which did play an impact in not just Guerrero and Mexico, but throughout Latin America and, and obviously the U.S., um, so they start to run candidates in the 1962 state elections. They ran a, a candidate for the governorship as well. This man who was a highly respected uh, Zapatista veteran, like he was, they had a really like a barnstorming campaign and they were harassed. Uh, they, they suffered persecution. They suffered assassinations and uh, they, they lost, you know, and, and they, they lost these elections. They claimed that the BRI had done one of their other uh, well-honed taxes, which was electoral fraud. And when they gathered to, protests at the end of 1962 in the city of Iguala, we have another massacre. And and, and once, you know, Vasquez barely barely escapes with his life. Um, he has to go on the run. He goes to northern Mexico for to, to escape some of the heat, even though there will be an arrest warrant uh, put on him. Uh, but this really marks like a moment of no return for people like Vasquez. Um, and later on, people like Lucio Cabañas to think about how, um, you know, this system is not working. And if we even if we try to work within the system, the only thing that we're going to you know result in is is us being killed at the hands of PRI agents, whether it's the police or the military, 
and, and, and Vasquez has this, this quote in 1963 when he says, um, you know, these, these, these bourgeois elections are, are a sham. They're a joke. They're a trick. And really echoes like, you know, a really famous quote by Karl Marx on, uh, in, in the way that he talks about elections. Um, so that, that marks, you know, it's one massacre after another. There's also less well-known massacres that take place in peasant communities out in the middle of nowhere that also start to radicalize certain sectors of these, of this movement. The movement, but for all intents and purposes, starts to splinter and divide, but this political, popular political radicalization continues to characterize much as a state, particularly when the people who come into power after this massacre um, essentially try to tamp down on more political dissidents in really harsh, violent uh, ways. And like squeezing jello, usually that kind of <laughs> repressive tactic just ends up making a big mess. Yeah, I mean, there's, they passed a law in 1965 that essentially made it illegal in the state to like criticize the 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 governor, the government, right? I mean, so it's you could see that a, a, a certain um, a certain type of political authoritarianism was becoming more manifest. You know, it, it, it had characterized PRI rule for a couple of decades, but now it was having a very direct impact in the everyday lives of people, of organizations, of unions, of peasant groups who were trying to organize. And now they were suffering the wrath of the state, whether in the form of the military or, or, or police forces wielded by, by different governors. So then as we're moving into the late 60s, early 70s, let's just talk a little bit about what, so what happens to Vasquez? What happens, you know, how does he sort of, he goes to the mountains, he starts um, organizing people into this guerrilla operation. Um, how does that work? What is their methodology? How are they speaking to peasants? And what's the kind of like conflict between the different facets of the left during that time? Yeah, so eventually Vasquez, he lives on the run. Um, and, I, and, I, and for the book or for the dissertation that then became the book, I, I had the opportunity to interview his, his widow. And she told, you know, they, they had kids and she, she talked to me about how difficult it was to raise these kids by herself because Vasquez was con continuously on the run. And he would drop into their Mexico City house once in a while, but then he had to immediately go because there was an arrest warrant for him, and he was identified by Mexican political police as a as a, as a quote unquote dangerous agitator. Eventually, he does get picked up in 1966, if I remember correctly. He's taken to a jail where um, he's suffering he's suffering uh, death you know death threats, assassination attempts. But he's such a good organizer that he manages to organize the prisoners. Um, and then these prisoners start to demand things like better living conditions, better food. He's just, he, he's just, a, he's a, he's a great organizer. Um, and his comrades, you know, in these earlier movements, they're, they're free. They also had continued to organize different independent peasant unions, different independent political unions, using their connections with these prior movements to grow something. Um, by 1966-67, and then eventually 1968, they had the idea that they were going to form a a guerrilla part, a, a guerrilla movement that would seek the overthrow of the PRI. And he organized a small guerrilla commando that actually liberated him from prison in April of 1968. They escaped up into the mountains. And from the next four years, 68 to 1972, uh, Genaro Vasquez and a small group of, of guerrilla fighters were up in the mountains trying to create an armed revolutionary movement against the Mexican state. By and large, they weren't very successful militarily. They were able to create urban cells that would, you know, expropriate, well, they would call expropriating banks, right? They would rob banks and then send money to, to the guys up in the mountains. Um, but by and large, this movement didn't become a, a big one. They were constantly on the run, harassed by military units. Um, 
they, you know, their biggest actions, really national actions that gained them a lot of, of, of notoriety in the early 70s, they would kidnap uh, famous wealthy people from the state of Guerrero, hold them for ransom, and then use that money to try to organize. But this movement militarily did not go beyond just a small group of people up in the mountains. The other guy, Lucio Cabañas, who was, who was a member of the Mexican Communist Party, um, he took a different route. He, he ended up working as a local school teacher in the, in the mid-1960s. He created so much... So many problems for local political bosses and landed elites in Guerrero that they sent him, they essentially exiled him to northern Mexico to work as a teacher there. He created so many problems there, organizing people to, you know, protect natural resources that they send him back to Guerrero. Like, we can't handle this guy. You guys keep him. And he gets enrolled in a local school conflict where the parents were fighting with a, a really, uh, really like horrible school rector who was demanding a lot of things from these really impoverished families. Um, and at one of these rallies, um, they try to assassinate him in 1967, May of 1967. And from then on out, he goes up into the mountains in Guerrero, like many generations of Guerrero rebels before him had done, including some of his uh, great uncles who had been part of Zapata's forces in Guerrero during the Mexican Revolution. And from 1968 to 1974, he's up in the mountains organizing a guerrilla force that at the low end probably included something like 140 combatants. Um, and then, you know, depending on some of the declassified military documents that I looked at or political police documents, the estimates could go up to as high as 250 to 300. And what distinguishes his movement, which was called the, 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 the party of the poor, is that they did manage to organize and to create this broad network of communal support in the mountains and the coast of Guerrero. And they were, they became infamous for ambushing, uh, laying these ambushes for military convoys. Um, as the Mexican PRI, as the PRI started to send in more and more military into the state in the early 70s as a way to, to, to try to exterminate, you know, launch a counterinsurgency and try to, in their words, in their documents, annihilate this guerrilla movement that had the, the broad support of, of many communities and cities in Guerrero. It, it seems to me like there's two, and tell me if this is way off. But, you know, there is this dynamic coming out of the guerrilla movement, uh, you know, from the revolution and kind of a very good through line there. But when you're also describing this activity in the late 60s and 70s and kidnapping and some of the sort of uh, expropriation and more low level activity, it's also reminiscent of, you know, leftists, uh, the, you know, the Red Army faction, uh, certainly the folks blowing things up in Bologna uh, around this same time, although maybe it's a little later. Um, can you just sort of give us the international kind of how they would have fit into the international constellation of uh, of leftist agitators as well as their indigenous uh, homegrownness? Yeah, and that's that's a great question. Thank you. And that was the 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 difficulty for me writing this history was to accomplish what you just asked for, right? Like appreciating the the long historical roots, uh, the homegrown roots of rebellion in Guerrero, but then also do, thinking about the international context. The Cuban Revolution, it plays a huge role, right? Uh, Ernesto Guevara, Che Guevara's ideas about the focal strategy, um, obviously he's playing a role, even though people like Vasquez and Cabañas completely disavowed it. Cabañas had some ideas that like sounded like they were Maoist ideas. Um, he also was a member of the Mexican Communist Party, so he had a certain reading of Marxism that was based by that party's tradition within Mexican politics, um, which actually disavowed armed struggle. Like they eventually... They, they would say that they kicked them out of the party when, when he embraced armed struggle, direct action in, in armed struggle. Um, the one thing I'll say, you know, the, oh, so they're also, they, they're also aware of what's going on in Vietnam. That has a huge impact as well, right? The, the people struggle in Vietnam against the United States. Um, they also know what's going on in other parts of Latin America. 
Uh, by the time we get to like 1972, 1973, there's probably about 38 guerrilla groups operating in Mexico, both rural and urban, and they know what's going on. They're conversant with with some of these um, global revolutionary traditions that are of the left that are going on at the same time. The the thing that distinguishes Mexico though is the the PRI, while domestically they were extremely repressive and they sound like any other Latin American dictatorship. They weren't seen like that internationally. They were seen as a revolutionary regime, and they did a lot of things internationally to enhance that image, like accepting South American exiles fleeing military dictatorships. They would invite them to Mexico to take care of them, while domestically they're wiping out their own armed left. Um, so these leftist movements in Mexico were extremely isolated. The PRI was really close to Cuba, right? Because Mexico was really the only country that maintained diplomatic relations with Cuba, with Fidel Castro, uh, Fidel Castro did not mess with these armed leftist movements that occurred in Mexico. So these Mexican guerrilla movements, both the urban groups and the rural groups, like the ones I study in this book, they're the most isolated in Latin America. And they, they, they received almost no help. There's one, there was one group that I'll mention because I think it's a fascinating story. There were these, this start, this group started, uh, it was started by a group of Mexican students who were uh, studying at the Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow. They, they see what in the late 60s, they see what's going on in Mexico. They saw the infamous student massacre of October 2nd, 1968. And they said, we have to do something. They go to all these different revolutionary embassies in Moscow asking these countries to train them as guerrilla fighters. And they're turned away. And the only embassy that accepted to take them in and to train them were the North Koreans. So the North Koreans actually trained about 150 Mexicans in the late 60s, early 70s, and then sent them back to Mexico to try to wage guerrilla warfare. Some of those individuals then found their way to Guerrero and they helped train Lucio Cabañas' party of the poor in tactics, uh, in tactics like how to ambush military convoys. Uh, but it, to me, it's kind of interesting that it was only the North Koreans that said, yep, yeah, we'll take you in um, and then we'll send you back and you can you know, start your revolution in, in, in Mexico. That is super interesting. Um, I did want to, um, as we kind of wrap things up, make sure that we're connecting what happened in the 60s and 70s Cold War era with what's going on today. I mean, one thing you talk about during the Cold War is that there's this sort of, um, you know, perception, just as you were saying, that the Mexican government is pretty well respected internationally. Uh, there's the so-called Mexican miracle of like three decades of economic growth between 1940 and 1970. They had this really high GDP growth, but none of that is sort of being translated into the countryside. So in terms of, you know, how the overarching economic system, how capitalism is sort of reliant on um, these peasant communities to continue this really, really fast paced growth. Um, you know, how is that one continued to this day and how do we see people either engaging or not engaging with this history? See, I think so. what my book really tries to show is that it, it's the underbelly or the seamy underbelly to the so-called Mexican miracle, right? So on the one hand, you have economists saying, look, we averaged 6% GDP for three decades. That's a great, that's an economic success story. What my book tries to show is, is the type of violence that that type of uh, industrialization, modernization requires, right? So it, it, to put it bluntly, Mexican communities like those in Guerrero, that, peasant communities like those in Guerrero that I research, they subsidize Mexican industrialization, modernization, urbanization during that period. Like, um, so if you watch the movie Roma, right, the, these beautiful images of, of Mexico City in the 1970s, that was made possible by the type of violence that I describe in my book. Um, in which these small peasant farmers are being squeezed 
by, by an assortment of different power players from the national level to local political bosses. Um, the, the way that we can connect it to today is that, you know, one of the responses of people in Guerrero and other states, like the state where my parents are from, Michoacán, they decided not to take up weapons and try to overthrow the Mexican government. That's kind of a drastic decision. They decided to immigrate to the United States, right? So immigration to the United States really ramps up. Mexican immigration to the United States really ramps up in the 1970s and almost serves as kind of like a like a safety valve, right? Like uh, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans are going to the United States to work in the service sector, uh, the service sector of the American economy. That somehow lessens some of the pressure, domestic internal pressure in Mexico. Mexico also had this like crazy high birth rate during the 1970s, right? And, and if you read the newspapers, that's all they're talking about. The Mexican presidents talk about that. And then the Americans start talking about it because they're freaked out when they're seeing all these Mexicans are coming to the U.S. And it's honestly the same shit we hear today about the immigration debate. It's happening in the 1970s. The, the demand for Jimmy Carter to build a wall is so similar to what we heard, uh, right. you know, in the 2000s and then during the Trump administration. Um, right, yeah, but essentially. That... Oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I always thought that was so bizarre, like with the, the U.S. perception of Trump, like we really like to attribute a lot of things to just like he's a total um, aberration from the rest of U.S. foreign policy. But if you go back, like talking about building the wall has been a thing for, you know, he turned it into a, a catchier slogan, but it's, you know, 20, 30 years, 40 years. Uh, Republicans, Democrats, everybody's talking John about John McCain ran on building that every time he ran. Constructing a barrier. Is Finish what, the dang you know, fence. He used to call it a fence. Nicer but term. Yeah, no different. Yeah, barrier yeah. fence. The the first demand for a wall happened because of the Mexican Revolution of 1910. And because the wow. Americans were afraid that the revolutionary uh, conflict would spill over into the United States, particularly on the U.S.-Texas border. So the first calls for the wall emerged in the context of the 1910 Mexican Revolution. And then like in the 70s, there was a congressman from New York who the way that he talked about the U.S.-Mexico border is that th he said this was our Maginot line. He's like, and we all know how that worked out for the French, right? So like... Yeah, this is the, the idea that, that Trump is some sort of an aberration. Um, it fits really well into the political agendas of both the Democrats and like these never Trumpers, right? This idea, totally. it, it allows them to maintain this, this like bullshit American exceptionalism. But if you go, it just, just go into the New York Times and, and put in border wall or border patrol <laughs> from the 1920s yeah. on, it's the same discourse, right? And you really see that ramped up in the 70s in this moment of, of intense social, economic and political strife in Mexico. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans, eventually millions, will choose to leave and try to immigrate to the United States without papers. And, and, and that's, you know, that's my, my family's a part of that. That's what my family did in the late, my parents did in the late 70s. Um, well, we may, it, oh, go ahead. Go I was just going to say, we may no, have to have you it. back on to have a, to have another conversation and get into NAFTA and all of these things that happened in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I did, before we go, the last thing we wanted to talk about was just the new book you have coming out. So the premise of that book and, and what you're working on now. It's eventually going to come out someday. So I'm researching. Uh, so one of the things we didn't talk about, and I actually didn't cover it as much in this book, um, and I, I will in my current project, is the Mexican state's response to these guerrilla movements in Guerrero and how they launched what you know activists today refer to as a dirty war. Um, the, the disappearance of at least 900 to 1,000 people, guerrerenses, people in Guerrero, um, as part of this, this really brutal counterinsurgency that Mexican military launched as a way to remove popular support, particularly for Lucio Cabañas' group, the Party of the Poor. 
Um, so this, at the same time that there's a, a massive quote unquote war on drugs that the Mexican government is launching throughout Mexico, but also especially in the state of Guerrero, because there's a lot of marijuana and opium poppies that are being produced. So like the 1970s in Guerrero is this messy constellation. It's like layer upon layer of conflict. There's, there's a war on drugs. There's a brutal, dirty war. There's guerrillas fighting. And that's what my second work is going to be about. I'm trying to figure out, and it's really motivated by the story of what's happened in Mexico since 2006, when we have low estimate, 80,000 people disappeared, more than 300,000 people dead as a consequence of this new drug uh, war on drugs. Like I'm going back to the 70s to understand how that's really the origin point for the type of like industrial sized violence that we've seen in the country since 2006, when uh, President Felipe Calderon unleashed the Mexican military and, and, and launched what he referred to as a war against drug cartels. Um, and right after my book came out, it, came, it was published summer of 2014. In September of 2014, we had this horrific thing that happens in Ayotzinapa in which 43 mostly indigenous uh, Mexican men, male students who were training to be teachers were disappeared, right? And we still don't, don't know. I mean, they've recovered DNA evidence for one or two of them, but we still don't know what happened to them. And it's the, the type of people who are most likely involved in disappearing these, these, these students from Ayotzinapa, these very politically engaged, passionate uh, uh, teachers in training, they're most likely the same forces that were involved in the type of violence that I think about, uh, that I researched in the 1970s, right? So in a way, Guerrero is one of these instances for me in which the past has never passed. And on the one hand, you have people who still don't know what happened to their loved one because he or she was disappeared by the Mexican military in the 1970s. And on the other hand, you still have the same people in power doing the same horrific things that then produces another radicalized generation of students from a place like Ayotzinapa. And when they try to resist, they suffer the same type of fate that people in the 1970s suffered. So if you go to Ayotzinapa today, they have murals to Lucio Cabañas, to Genaro Vasquez, um, but they're also suffering a similar type of state repression and, and terror as, as the people that they have painted uh, um, uh, in the form of murals in the, in the walls of their school. Well, we'll, uh, we'll really look forward to reading that when it comes out and we'll have to have you back on. Um, but thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Uh, the book is Spectres of Revolution, and we hope you'll check out that book as well. And um, yeah, thanks thanks for being with us here today, Alex. Thank you so much. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. I appreciate it. La imagen por la cual vale la pena arriesgar la vida, sacrificarse hasta la muerte en los campos de batalla de todos los continentes del mundo. Comité, comitato. Committed, committed, corrupt, committed, we're young, we're submitted, we're committed.